Down in Victoria, that was lovely. I loved that last hymn, especially. It was really beautiful. We're going to turn in our Bibles this evening to John's Gospel in chapter 10. John's Gospel in chapter 10. I'm going to uh, uh, dip my toes in John's Gospel, although Alan's preaching through the Gospel. Uh, he's got a while before he gets up to chapter 10. Uh, so I'm hoping he won't mind me uh, taking a couple of verses for tonight's subject. John chapter 10, verse 17 and verse 18. So just a short reading. Uh, John's Gospel, John was one of the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle John, and he uh, was one of the early pastors of the church as well, uh, uh, a founding uh, pastor in a church in Ephesus and elsewhere. And he wrote this Gospel to record uh, things that hadn't been recorded in Matthew and Mark and Luke, what we call the synoptics. And he wrote this sometime about 85, 90 AD, and he records this passage, which is not found in the other Gospels, as a saying of Christ. And it comes uh, while the Lord Jesus was speaking in the temple, and he is speaking, he's just healed the blind man, and he's been speaking to the Pharisees and the blind man, and he's having a, a, a discourse, giving a discourse about himself as the good shepherd. And here's what he says, Uh, in verse 17 and 18, and I'm sure you'll see why I've chosen this tonight uh, for our Easter study. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my father. Beautiful words. Please keep those open before you if you have your Bible there. I came across this very touching story about a little boy in America called Xavier McCory. And Xavier McCory uh, was colorblind, severely colorblind, until he was 10 years old. He only saw the world through shades of grey and white and black. I don't know if you can imagine what it must be like to see life like that. I do remember black and white TVs as I was growing up. My kids can't imagine such a thing, uh, but uh, that's uh, the most I ever saw. But he saw the whole world in shades of grey and white and black. However, when he was 10 years old, his aunt, uh, Selina, who lived in another place, sent him a special pair of glasses that had been made called Enchroma glasses. I expect Cressy knows about these. And they enabled him for the first time to see life in colour. And you can see this video on YouTube where the little boy just puts the glasses on and just bursts into tears. For the first time in his life, he sees the world in colour. Can you imagine at 10 years old, What a revelation that must be. What a different perspective on life. And you know what? When we get a different perspective, it changes how we understand things, doesn't it? And John's Gospel gives us another perspective on the life of Christ and on the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John's uh, record of the Lord Jesus' word in the good words in the Good Shepherd discourse give us his perspective on salvation. And I want us to have a look at this tonight because uh, this will help us to appreciate the truths that we're celebrating at Easter and understand more about the Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to follow Christ's thoughts in the word here. 
I read in Reader's Digest a lovely story about a, uh, a lady who was at a Braille reading convention. Now, I used to work for an optician, so I do pick up these illustrations, I'm sorry. But uh, she uh, was at a Braille reading convention. It was uh, a competition, and the Queen Mother, the late Queen Mother, was sitting uh, partly as one of the judges at the Braille reading competition. And in between the different sessions, uh, a young blind girl was to present her with a posy of flowers. But this lady watched the little blind girl before she bought the flowers, and she was just feeling their leaves, the silky feel of their leaves, and smelling the perfume on her hands. Not being able to see them, this is how she gained her understanding of them. When she gave them to the Queen Mother, the Queen Mother said thank you, and the little girl went and sat down, and uh, the, the program moved on. But the lady watched the Queen Mother. Do you know what the Queen Mother did? She closed her eyes, and she felt them like the blind girl did. She was copying her experience and gaining her perspective from it. That's what I want us to do with this passage tonight. I want us to trace the Lord Jesus' own words to get his perspective on salvation, the saving of sinners and his work of salvation, which he came to do for us. And uh, one Bible commentator has said of this passage, few passages in the New Testament tell us so much about the Lord Jesus in so short a compass. And I think he's right. Here we see five things. First of all, we see the critical purpose of salvation in the opening line of the Lord Jesus' words in verse 17. He says, therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. And the critical purpose of salvation is laid out in that first, pers- uh, first comment there. Therefore, my father loves me. J.P. Morgan, the, uh, the great businessman, once said, a man always has two reasons for doing anything, a good idea and the real reason. <laughs> and uh, sometimes that is true, isn't it? Well, here we see the Lord Jesus' real reason for coming to save sinners. And he did it not just for us. He did it for the love of his heavenly Father. Now, this is a remarkable thing. And in John's Gospel, the Lord Jesus speaks an awful lot about the Father and my Father all the way through. And you pick up very powerfully the the relationship between the Father and the Son in the Holy Trinity. God the Father and God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they, they love each other. And the love of the Father and the Son is brought out. In fact, one thing you'll notice about this passage of Scripture that we're looking at, just these two verses, is that they are a symmetry, what we sometimes call in Bible study a chiasm. And uh, it starts off with the Father's love in the opening sentence, which says, therefore my Father loves me, and it ends with the Father's command at the end. And in between, you've got two statements about laying down my life and taking it again, and in the middle, a statement about no one takes it from me. Beginning and end, the Father is in the Lord Jesus' focus. A little bit like his words on the cross. You know, the first word the Lord Jesus said when he was on the cross was, Father, Father, forgive them. The last cry on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. His Father was always in his mind. And uh, we, we perhaps 
struggle with this and uh, uh, don't keep this in mind. We're not so uh, always so hot on relationships. I did hear about one uh, Christian couple who are having trouble in their marriage, a couple called Sam and Hilda. And uh, Sam and Hilda were always arguing, always bickering. And one day Hilda came up with a great idea. She said, you know what, Sam, I've got the answer to our family problems. She said, why don't we pray the Lord takes one of us home, then I'll go and live with my sister. (laughs) Now, you know, that's how we sometimes are. We're not close always in relationships. But let me tell you, it's never like that in the Trinity. The Father and the Son They love each other and there is a closeness. And the Lord Jesus came to die on the cross and rise again for the love of his father. You say, John, why is this so important? Well, it's important because it gives us perspective. It gives us Christ's perspective on the saving work that he came to do. You know, if we were watching Christ's death from outside uh, without knowing this, we would misunderstand what was happening. In fact, Isaiah chapter 53 gives us the, uh, the, the, the repentant prayer of Israel later in, in history when they realize that Jesus is the Messiah and they look back on his saving work. And in Isaiah 53 verse 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. That's how they, how, how they looked at it. They, they, they didn't understand the Father and the Son were in relationship uh, in the saving of sinners. And they thought Jesus must have done something wrong. And this was why he was suffering on the cross. And Jesus was being, being punished for being an evil person. As uh, faulty theology works on the idea of, you know, if you do good, good things will happen to you. If you do bad, bad things will happen to you. And uh, this is the way many people would have looked at the cross and the saving work of the Lord Jesus. So the critical purpose of salvation here is, is to understand the love of the Father and the Son. One Bible commentator uh, explained it like this, which I found very helpful. He said, it is as if we might presume, so to speak, as though the salvation of mankind had called forth a new relationship of love between the Father and the Son. You know, I I think that's that's probably probably right. You know, I, I love my wife, Heather. I love her deeply. But you know what? When I became a dad and I saw Heather with the children... I loved her even more. You know, it's, it's just, it touches you. I remember in the mornings listening on the baby monitor because I'm up earlier, earlier than the rest of the family. I used to have the baby monitor. But then I'd hear Heather go in and wake the children. And the sound of her voice waking the children, ah, oh, it just melted me. I loved her for what she was doing for them. And you know what? This is like the love of the father for the son. So let's take this on board and uh, truly understand how great the mighty love is in the Trinity and the work of salvation from Christ's purpose, from Christ's perspective. It was for us. He did come for us, but he also came because of the love he has for his father. That will become more clear as we go on uh, what is involved in that. The second thing we see here in the words of the Lord Jesus is the complete program of salvation in verse 17. Going back over those words, it says, 
Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. I remember some years ago hearing about uh, 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 one of these uh, like Roman Catholic shrines that you see all over Europe. If you ever go to some of the Roman Catholic countries like Italy uh, and Austria and places like this, you'll see shrines everywhere. Honestly, when I went, uh, I believe you wouldn't know this now, but I used to go jogging every day, okay? And when we were on holiday in, in Austria, it's true, don't, I'm not lying in church. <laughs> all right, and uh, I, I went jogging one day and I went out in the country. I couldn't believe it. I, and in fact, I plotted my course back to the hotel by the different shrines. It was unbelievable. They were everywhere. Uh, But in Italy, um, there was a a shrine of the cross. And people every Easter Sunday would go and and lay flowers at this shrine of the cross, or at Easter time come and lay flowers at the shrine of the cross. And somebody noticed that this was just below the brow of a hill. They thought, what's on the other side of the hill? And they just beat on up the hill, past the shrine. Most people just laid their flowers and went down, but they went on up the hill, up the brow, through the thicker grass, you know, that hadn't been trodden down. And they came to the top, and there was another shrine of the tomb of Jesus, a, a, a fake tomb of Jesus there. And it was totally neglected. And sadly, that's so often the way when it comes to people's understanding about Christianity, when we think about Easter. We think about Jesus dying on the cross, but we forget the importance of his rising again from the dead. You know, there's been a Christian book that's been published recently called The Cross is Not Enough. Now, that's a shocking title, isn't it? Stop and think about it. The cross is not enough. But it's a book about the resurrection and the importance of the resurrection. I want to say it's right. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus is so important as well as the cross that he came to die on. And this is in his own words emphasized here. He said, I lay down my life that I may take it again. And this is the complete program of salvation from Christ's perspective. His death wasn't on its own. It was to be like Siamese twins with the resurrection itself. It's interesting, the Lord Jesus Christ gave the church two sacraments or ordinances, perhaps as they're better called. The Roman Catholic Church has seven. Uh, The Evangelical Church has two, the ones that are found in the Bible. And they are this, the communion, the bread and the wine, and baptism, believer's baptism, not infant baptism, believer's baptism. And when you look at those two things, they symbolize the cross, which is what the communion is, and the resurrection, which is what the baptism is. These two things are the complete program of salvation, and we need both. And the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead, as he said here in in his own words. He was the good shepherd who came to lay down his life to save the sheep. If you go back to verse 15 in your Bibles, it says, As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus came to be a substitute, to be a saviour, to pay the price for the sins that you and I have done wrong, so we can be forgiven. You know, there's only two types of people that will make it into heaven. Those who are perfect and those who are forgiven. Which are you? 
If you're not perfect, you need to be forgiven. And that's why the Lord Jesus came to die on the cross, so you could be forgiven. He took the punishment you deserve for your sins and my sins, so that you can be forgiven and go to heaven on account of his saving work. But he laid down his life, as he says in verse 17, that he may take it up again. And this is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. Now, a lot of people today ask this question. They said, but how do you know it's true? How do we know Jesus rose from the dead? Now, Alan gave us evidence this morning. I want to give you a summary for, for the sake of tonight's message. Four things by which we know it's true. Number one, by experience. The apostles experienced. They saw the Lord Jesus Christ. They met him after he died on the cross and rose again. They met him. And today, we can find it by experience too. When I was a little boy of 11 years old, I became convicted of my sins and I asked the Lord Jesus to save me and come into my life. And you know what happened? Bang, he did. He really did. And I knew by experience, like the Lord Jesus said, if any man chooses to do my will, he'll know I come from the Father. I knew by experience he's alive. So I could sing tonight. He walks with me and he talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives. And we know by experience it's true. We know by explanation it's true as well. The explanation of the resurrection is the only explanation that fits the empty tomb. No other explanation fits. People say the disciples stole the body. Impossible. Impossible. For a start, the tomb was guarded by Roman soldiers. And not only that, for the Jews to steal a body, they would have to carry it through Jerusalem. It's a holy city. They would be seen. There were over a million people there because it was Passover. It was impossible for anybody to steal the tomb. You say, well, they went to the wrong tomb. Have you seen the garden tomb? It's not a cemetery. There's only one tomb there. And I've done funerals. They're very emotional. And one thing I guarantee you is you never forget where your loved one is buried. I tell you, they knew the right tomb. And we could go on like this. I haven't got time tonight, but if you look up uh, the evidence for the resurrection, you'll see there's no other explanation for the empty tomb. And that's a part, logically, for the resurrection of Christ. Not only that, thirdly, expansion is a part of the reason. One of the things that historians, both Christians and non-Christians, will agree on is these two facts. Number one, Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. That's a historical fact recorded not only by Christians, but by non-Christians, like Josephus, Tastus, and other historians, and it's a well-documented, respected fact. Jesus of Nazareth was crucified under Pontius Pilate by the Roman government. The second fact is that not long afterwards, the whole world was exploding with the news. He was alive, and the church was growing all over the world. Those two facts are irreconcilable. How do you bring them together? There's only one explanation, and that is the resurrection. Now, I'm not saying historians believe in the resurrection, but they believe he died, and they believe that met the church grew quickly afterwards. The answer is that. And the fourth is exposition. What is it that the Lord Jesus told us to put our trust in for the facts of the resurrection? The word of God. Do you remember on that Easter Sunday, the Lord Jesus walked 
those seven miles with those two downhearted disciples on the road to Emmaus. And he said to them, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. And he taught them that they had to put their trust in the word of God. Not experience, although we do have the experience, but the faith rests on the word of God for for these things. And they said, did not our hearts burn within us as he explained the scriptures to us? And when we study the scriptures, we see it's true. So that's how we know it's true. We could go into that in a lot more depth. But this is so important, what we're celebrating today, the full program of, of, of salvation, the cross and the resurrection. Tim Keller, a Bible teacher, said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And that's true. Now, this is so important that we accept the resurrection as well as the cross. It does three things for us. First of all, it vindicates Christ. It vindicates Christ. You know, there's um, a Jewish group in the world today uh, that worship a man called Rabbi Schneerson. And they call him the Messiah. There's just one problem. He lived and died in New York, and he's buried there. Now, that's no vindication of his claim. The vindication that Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God, is the fact that he rose from the dead. And Romans chapter 1, verse 4, tells us that the Holy Spirit declared he was the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. It vindicates his claim, who he is. And not only that, it validates the cross, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 16, as Alan so ably preached this morning, said this, For if the dead do not rise, Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. The cross was the receipt. The payment is fulfilled for the resurrection. And it validates the cross work of Christ. Not only that, it vouchsafes our own resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 goes on to tell us that just as Christ was raised from the dead, so we also, who are represented by him, the last Adam, will also receive resurrection life one day when Christ comes again. I'm excited about that. There's going to be an airlift and a facelift all at once. I'm going to get a new body and be made in Christ's likeness and made uh, with uh, a restored image of God in me. I'm looking forward to that so much. This is why Christians get excited about Easter, because we see the complete program of salvation as explained by the Lord Jesus. Deity is revealed, death is reversed, disciples are revived in this wonderful perspective. The third thing we see here is the controlling person of salvation. And this is the Lord Jesus' central saying in this little two-verse passage, where he says this in verse 18, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. And he's speaking here about his power in the matter of his death on the cross. Just trying to read my wife's notes. My notes, that's okay. 
Uh, okay, and the, the, the point that the Lord Jesus is making here is that he himself is going to be the one who surrenders his life when it comes to his execution. You know, one of the big debates in history is who's responsible for the death of Jesus of Nazareth? And you know as well as I do that sadly anti-Semitism has blamed the Jewish people. Well, the Jewish people were partly responsible. We cannot deny that. That's written all the way through the book of Acts. Peter himself said, as we heard tonight in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, him you, with the help of lawless men, crucified. You hung him on a tree. When Peter stood before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5, he said, you murdered the prince of life. He said they murdered him. That was the word he used. So the Jewish people were partly responsible. But so were the Romans partly responsible and the Gentiles responsible for it. Pilate and others. But who was ultimately the person in control of it all? It was the Lord Jesus Christ. And what gave his death value was the voluntary nature of his death and resurrection. No one takes it, my life, from me, but I lay it down of myself. And this is remarkable because this shows us the power of the Lord Jesus Christ and his authority uh, in the whole matter of his death and salvation. He wasn't a victim who was out of control of the circumstances. He was the one who was reigning in all the circumstances. One of the church fathers uh, said this about uh, Christ, that Christ reigned from the cross. I love that thought. You know, he reigned from the cross. He said, I could come down. They said to him, if you're the son of God, why don't you come down and save yourself? He could have done. But he was there to save us. And that's why he stayed. But he was reigning from that cross and he was enduring the cross for our salvation. And the, this is something that is echoed uh, from other parts of scripture. You know, Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and verse 8 says this truth. It says, no one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit and no one has power in the day of death. And what that verse is teaching us is that apart from suicide, of course, where somebody you know, does something uh, to take their own life in, in, a, in a way that is, is dramatic, nobody has the power to release their spirit themselves. Uh, I remember as a child, uh, as a young person, trying to prove this to myself and uh, see if I could give up my spirit. I don't know what I would have achieved if I'd proved it because I'd be dead, but, you know, to, try to let it go, you know, and you can't do it. But on the cross, we read the Lord Jesus breathed his last. And he said, my father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he gave up his spirit and went home. That's remarkable, isn't it? He had the power to lay down his life. Revelation 1.18 is a verse that will have been quoted all over the world today. Because the Lord Jesus said in those verses, I am he who lives and was dead and became alive. And you know what? In the Greek, it's really interesting. When it says I live, it says I became dead. 
can you become dead? That's the power of the Lord Jesus. He became dead. He laid down his life on the cross. And this is amazing reality uh, to understand. We need to appreciate this and we need to appropriate this because what this teaches us is the Lord Jesus is sovereign in the matters of salvation and therefore we can trust him with our lives in all matters as well. Uh, I read a, a very wonderful book recently about a man who was a, a missionary uh, in, in, in Africa and uh, his name was Michael Warburton. And while Michael Warburton was on the mission field, one day he, he, he was out trying to fix, I think it was a, a water tank on the mission field, and he, he, he came suddenly with a fever and started to feel very unwell. And he went back home and, and uh, suddenly his health was going down, down, down. He had spinal meningitis. They had to rush him from hundreds of miles away from where the mission station was to the nearest hospital. They didn't have the facilities there. Amazing, one of the airline companies stepped up and they flew him back to this country where he was put into a hospital. And at first he thought, oh, you know, just get over this ordeal, get back up and get back on with life again. Oh no. He was going to be in hospital for a long time. And in fact, actually, he was going to spend the rest of his missionary life in a wheelchair. But he called his book a wheelchair dedicated to God. He knew God was in control and he trusted. And he said, the first thing I knew about how God had gone before me was when they saw my Bible on the side in the hospital, they said, do you believe in God? They said, would you do some Bible studies for us? And there on the ward, he had a Bible study. And nurses and doctors who were coming off duty would come. And he said it was a strange old crowd. All of us here, all of us, sick people, all these doctors and nurses. And he was having Bible studies from his bed. And he realized then God was in control. You know, the one who was in control of his own life on the cross is the one who can be in control of your life. You yield your life to him. He can help you with life's challenges. I find that a tremendous encouragement. Fourthly, we see the conquering power of salvation in verse 18. Because as the Lord Jesus goes on, he says, I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. And here the Lord Jesus is speaking about the fact that he not only had the power to submit his life, but the power to take it back again. Now, the Greek word for power here is the word exousia, and it means authority. But the Bible isn't wrong translating it as power. Some translations do put authority, some put power. It means both. Let me explain it to you like this, okay? A traffic warden has the authority to stop a bus, but he hasn't got the power to stop a bus. But the Lord Jesus has authority and power. And he's saying here, I have the power, I have the authority from my Father to lay it down again, lay down my life, and I have the power to take it up again. The Bible commentator Matthew Henry said this is so different to us. He said our lives, when our lives are gone, the Bible says it's like water poured out on the ground. You can't take that water back up or when it's spilled out on the ground, can you? But the Lord Jesus said, I have the power to take it up again. 
And he was given this word of comfort and hope for his disciples ahead of the cross. You're going to see me go and die on that cross. But I want to give you a word of encouragement. Very soon, you're going to be singing up from the grave, he arose. Because I'm going to conquer. I have the power to take it back again. You know what this shows us? This shows us his identity. There's only one who's got the power like that, and that is God. This is power of deity. This shows us his authority, which he received from his father. And this shows us his sovereignty. How we need to be thankful. He has resurrection power. And you and I can look to him for our resurrection hope as well. You know, lots of people don't, uh, don't believe that there's going to be life after death. And one lady who grew up in church in Hanover in Germany, she heard about the resurrection and she said, I don't like that, I don't want anything to do with that. And she commanded when she died, this very wealthy lady, that they would put around her tomb uh, uh, big slabs of marble. So it's one of these big marble slabbed tombs. And then she, she said, I want after you've built the tomb up like that, I want you to put metal braces on it so the lid cannot be lifted and nothing can happen to that tomb. Then I want you to put a fence around it. She was so determined. There was just one problem. Somewhere along the line, a little seed got underneath the slabs of marble and it started to grow. And after she had died, it broke through. You know what? You can't stop the power of life. And this is the power of the Lord Jesus, the power of his resurrection. And he can bring death, uh, put death into reverse and raise us from the dead. I'm so glad about that. I want to give a personal word of testimony. Tonight, my sister is in Harefield Hospital. On Wednesday, she is going to have an operation. And there's a very strong possibility she will not live. She has a serious heart condition. As, and that's just like the top of her list of problems. She has multiple serious health problems. But she doesn't have this problem, this dealt with. She will die. If she has this operation, she might live. That's the option they've got. When she's had the operation on Wednesday, they will be keeping her unconscious for between three to five weeks. That's the size of operation it is. Will I ever see my sister again? Yes. Yes. Because she knows the Lord Jesus Christ as her saviour. And just as Christ rose from the dead and he had the power to take his life up again, he will take her life up again too. And I will see her again when he comes again. What a hope this is. And you know what? This is the hope each one of us needs to embrace for ourselves and for our families. You know, I do a lot of funerals. Alan does the same. And you know, one thing I wish is that everybody become a Christian because it's the only funeral you can take with any hope. Every other funeral looks back on a person's life and they can only just say nice things about the person after they've gone. A Christian funeral can look forward to the future with hope. There's going to be a resurrection and our loved ones are going to be raised in the likeness of Christ. Do it for yourself and do it for your loved ones that they may have hope when you've passed away, that they know where you've gone and that they will see you again 
in Christ. The final thing we see here is the covenant plan of salvation. The last little phrase that the Lord Jesus says here. He says, this command I have received from my Father. And this little phrase, this command, uh, is talking about his death and resurrection on the cross. And it's one of those little phrases that is a little giveaway phrase. And you've got to think about it. And this is how you have to read the Bible. Yeah, I always say you have to read the Bible like you read uh, a legal document or an insurance co- uh, state, uh, statement. Because you want to think about all the implications in every line, don't you, when you read those things. And that's how you should read the Bible. Take seriously what is said here. It's more serious than those things. And think about the implications in it. What does it mean Jesus received a command from his father. Some translations call it a charge from his father. I thought he laid down his life voluntarily. So how is he receiving a command from his father? What we have here is a little window into something we were singing about in that last song. It's called the plan of salvation. Some Christians like to call it the covenant of salvation that God in the Trinity planned. And it's one of the glorious realizations that in the Trinity, in the Godhead, in eternity past, the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit conceived this plan of salvation whereby they would redeem and rescue those who were lost. This is a beautiful thing. And, and the Father had his part in the planning. And the Holy Spirit has his part in the regenerating. And the Lord Jesus Christ had his part in laying down his life and taking it again as the Redeemer and Saviour. And he did it at the Father's command. This is beautiful. I, I love this so much. And this really blessed me just recently. I was reading this book uh, on this, this matter. Uh, uh, and the author said this, how the love of God is magnified to us by this teaching. It is not from a yesterday only that he has busied himself with our salvation. In the depths of eternity, our foreseen miseries were a cause of care to him. In that mysterious intercourse between father and son, which is an eternal, which is as eternal as the essence of Godhead itself, we, our estate, our sin, our helplessness, and the dreadfulness of our condition and end, were a subject of consideration and solicitude. I just think that's fantastic. You know, God had you on your on his heart long before you ever had him on yours. Isn't that beautiful? And he has a plan of salvation to draw those who trust in Christ to himself. I wonder if that'll be you tonight. I wonder if you'll put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and say, this saviour with such a perspective of salvation, I want him to be my saviour. He can be. If you repent of your sin and turn from what you've been doing wrong to put your trust in Christ, you can be saved even tonight. If you pray to him and say, Lord Jesus, save me, forgive me. I trust in what you have done. The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Sadly, not everyone will do this. You'll notice in verse 19 following, it says, Therefore there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, He has a demon and is mad. Why do you listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who has a demon. 
Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? You know what? I, I reckon perhaps even as we go out of here tonight, there could be a division among us. There'll be those who say, oh, if you want to believe that stuff, you're welcome to, but not me. That's a load of nonsense. And other people go out and say, that's not nonsense. That's life. I'm going to believe it. Which is it going to be for you tonight? Easter, the first day of the week, Jesus rose from the dead. You know why it was the first day of the week? God was sending us a message. This is a new beginning. And it can be a new beginning for you if you trust in Christ. Put your trust in him. He came to be a saviour for you. Thank you, Alan.